So Jesus is still in the middle of his confrontation with the authorities of the temple. The chief priests and the elders had asked him, by what authority have you been doing what you're doing? Who gave you permission to come into the temple and to cleanse it, to drive out the money changers and those selling things for sacrifice? Who gave you permission to ride into Jerusalem like a king, like a victorious king riding on the back of a borrowed burrow? In their minds, in the minds of the chief priests and, and the temple elders, this backwoods rabbi from Nazareth had gone too far, and he had to stop. So in response to their question, Jesus told a parable. He told a parable about the two sons. We're not going to relitigate that parable, but you'll remember that Jesus told the chief priests and the tax collectors that the or the chief priests and the elders, that the tax collectors and the prostitutes would enter the kingdom of heaven before them. That the priests and the elders of the temple would have to wait in line at St. Peter's pearly gates because others were going to go in ahead of them. Jesus was telling them that faith is more than religious acts of piety in a holy place. That faith in the kingdom of God changes us, causing us to repent from the things that we've been doing that the world tells us that we are supposed to do, and instead we turn towards the ways of God. So Jesus told that parable. And then we get to today's parable, saying that the kingdom of heaven is like a vineyard. Saying that the vineyard owner built the finest vineyard. There was a fence around it. The finest grapes were growing on the vine. There was a watchtower in the middle so that you could see everything that was happening around the property. Then the owner decides he would like to leave the country for a while. He's obviously worked hard building this vineyard, and it's time for a vacation. And rather than letting the vineyard sit idle, the vineyard owner finds tenants to lease the property and to care for it. And year after year, these tenants enjoy the fruits of their labor in the vineyard, free of charge. But the tenants forgot that they were just that that they were indeed tenants. The fence, the watchtower, the vines, the grapes, the wine that they produced was not theirs. The tenants enjoyed the vineyard's fruit until the day that the owner returned, when rent was due. The rent collector arrives and the tenants forget that they are just tenants. They beat the owner's representative, so the owner has to send another set of servants to collect what was owed. The rent is past due, and it's time to pay up. And so the tenants decide to beat those servants sent by the vineyard owner. And at this point, the vineyard owner is at his wit's end. He has had enough. He says, I'm going to send my son. Surely they'll listen to my son, and my son will get what is due to me. But the renters, they kill the son. And Jesus asks, when the vineyard owner comes, what will he do to those tenants? Because of the ways of the world, because of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth, the priests and the elders say that when the vineyard owner gets news of what happens and when the vineyard owner returns, that the vineyard owner will put those wretches to a miserable death. And again, Jesus says that somehow the kingdom of heaven is wrapped up in this mess. Whenever we think of the coming judgment of the Lord, complete with 
judgment, we go to a, at least I tend to, go to a dark place. We think of hell, fire, and brimstone. We fear the coming of the Lord, knowing that in part that we tend to be wretches from time to time. But this is why whenever the Lord or an angel of the Lord appears throughout the Holy Scriptures, they begin their conversation with the same four words. Do not be afraid. An angel to Zechariah in Luke chapter 1. Zechariah, do not be afraid, for your prayers have been heard. Luke chapter 1 again to Mary. Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. Matthew chapter 1 to Joseph. Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid. For all the alleluias and all of the praises that we sing during worship, the gospel agrees, all the gospels agree that when the Lord returns, our posture will be one of fear. Why is that? Why is it that we immediately go to a place of fear when we will be confronted by God's grace? Perhaps it's because you're like me, and you don't want to be judged at all. I don't want you all to judge me, and you don't want me to judge you. Heck, one of the most accurate critiques of the church today is that the church tends to be a bit judgmental. But we don't want the world to judge us. For in part, we are afraid of what will be revealed about ourselves to the world or what will be revealed about ourselves in that moment of judgment. But we benefit from, the, from knowing what has happened. We've read the stories. We know that Jesus rode into Jerusalem on the back of a cult, a symbol of peace. He cleansed the temple. He was then confronted by the chief priests and the elders. Later, he'll be arrested, tried, killed, and then buried outside of the city walls. But remember, we know how the story ends. We know that on the third day, he was raised. We know that the first sign of his messiahness was that when he came, it wasn't with judgment, but rather it was with a sign of his power, turning water into wine at a wedding in Cana. And we know that as he prepared to take his last breaths, his final chance for earthly judgment, the world thought that he didn't curse anyone from the cross. Rather, he said, Lord, forgive them, for they do not know what they do. We know that Jesus preached the good news of God's unmerited grace, that God loves you just the way you are, but God loves you so much to not leave you as you are. And still, when confronted with God's return or God's judgment, we immediately go to a place of fear. Why is that? Jesus' parables are a window through which we can view the world outside of ourselves. And the best part about a window is that as you're looking out of a window, well, at least this is from when I'm looking out a window, you catch a glimpse of yourself. You see yourself in the parable. The parable of the wicked tenants is considered to be a parable of God's judgment because the owners took ownership of that which didn't belong to them. In the same way Jesus was confronting the priests and the elders of the temple, Jesus is confronting the church today. Jesus is confronting us. They, 
we often take ownership of what doesn't belong to us. After Jesus cleansed the temple, you remember he was asked, by what authority are you doing these things? And the same can be asked of us, the church today. Who told us that we could do the things that we are doing? Because in the church, it can feel as though we must do everything on our own. As your pastor, it, can be, it is the most tempting thing in the world to say, it is just easier for me to do it myself. I'm not going to wait for the church folk to come along, and I'm certainly not going to wait for Jesus. We are making disciples, we tell ourselves, of Jesus Christ, but they're in our image. We must fill the church thinking that the metrics that we track say more about us than they do about the ways in which God is working in our community. We think that we must ensure that no one misses out on the grace of God. We think that we must get them to straighten up and fly right. We think that we must do this or we must do that so that Jesus can be who Jesus is and so that Jesus can do whatever he's going to do. When we are making decisions in the church, or preparing to respond to God's call, how often do we ask, what does God want from us? Back when I was in youth group, you'll remember these, before there were the Livestrong cancer bracelets, there were the WWJD bracelets. It was supposed to be a reminder, what would Jesus do in this situation? And in hindsight, I just wore the bracelet, and I rarely considered what Jesus would do. But how often do we think about, what would Jesus actually do in this situation? And because from my experience and you all nodding your heads, I know that the church doesn't ask that question nearly enough. Or when we do ask the question, we make sure that whatever we determine Jesus would do aligns with what we've already decided to do. Many have outright rejected Jesus Christ because the church has failed to ask those questions opting instead for judgment, for judging folks, or worse, for asking the wrong questions. Well, what does the board want us to do? What will look best on social media? What does the bishop want us to do? The title of Christian, at times, serves as a way that we insulate ourselves from the ways the church behaves like the temple authorities that were confronting Jesus. And if we use this parable as a window through which we can see the world, like the priests and the elders, our job is to recognize ourselves first and foremost in the story. The temple did not belong to the priests or the elders in the same way that the church does not belong to us. But that's where this parable of judgment turns into a parable of God's amazing grace. And we no longer have reason to fear when we ask ourselves, by whose authority are we doing what we are doing on Sunday morning? Who told us that you could make this commotion? And in our answer to that question, we realize that this building, this mission, what we've been called to do is on loan to us. And we step out of the weight of guilt and judgment and expectations and we step into grace None of us, no one in this room, no one sitting on any hardwood pew or watching worship from home can keep a church going by themselves. I can't do it, and nor can you. 
Walker Chapel, like every other church, is God's church. This is God's church. This is God's worship service. And you, we, are God's people. And this is where financial stewardship in the church becomes important. Because we're not only part of the mission of Walker Chapel. What we do here in worship, what we do through learning or discipleship, whether you're an adult or a child, and what we do through our hands-on mission work in our community and around the world is part of God's larger plan for making all of creation new, which in turn places us in ministry and mission alongside the saints that sustain the church today while also laying the groundwork for the saints of the church who will continue this work for years to come. But still, we can't sidestep judgment. We can't escape that Jesus says that he will return. The priests and the elders, they said that a miserable death is coming. Doesn't sound like good news, does it? It can leave us fearful for what's to come. But, and you know it's a big but, so you know that it doesn't lie, a few chapters after this incident, a few chapters after this confrontation, God raises the Son. God raises the second person of the Trinity who had been buried in a borrowed tomb outside of the walls of Jerusalem. God's amazing grace is a stumbling block to those who want to insist that their best behavior or their works are more important than trusting in God's forgiveness. God extends grace and forgiveness seven times, 70 times, and still we insist upon law. We want to be told what to do. What are the boxes that need to be checked? What scares me the most about this parable of judgment is that we are, that I am, I'm slow to learn. And in being slow to learn, I'm slow to believe that all God has ever wanted from me all that God has ever wanted from any of us is for us to believe. What happened on the cross, what happened in Christ's tomb is the cornerstone upon which God's new creation began. All that is left to do now is to escape the judgment of the vineyard owner. All that's left to do is to trust that through Jesus Christ, through the Son who gave himself up for all of creation, is that you've already escaped that which you thought was coming. The good news is that the rent has been paid in full on your behalf by the Son. Amen.